To begin. Are you watching closely? To begin. Clytus, I'm bored. How to start? What plaything can you offer me today? In Life Itself, a memoir, Roger Ebert begins. I was born inside the movie of my life. I was born a poor black child. The visuals were before me. I was born in it. The audio surrounded me. Molded by it. The plot unfolded inevitably, but not necessarily. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Hello and welcome to the first syllable. So you know I'm recording this episode immediately after the previous one to get to the part I never got to that I thought would be the whole episode last time. Because I was talking about world building versus storytelling and coming up with story ideas that you might never write. And in particular, that was inspired by watching the bonus episode of The Sandman, season one, where they did Dream of a Thousand Cats, which is great, but specifically they did Calliope as well, which was about a man who holds prisoner, a muse and uses her for inspiration. The use being the operative word here. Uses and abuses. Men and women use and abuse each other all the time. And his punishment at the end is to have too many ideas. And I always love that part of the story because I used to have this problem where I'd come up with random ideas and they were basically like single sentence notions. The latest one being, it came specifically while I was watching Clippy. Where's the note? This is on my phone. It was about an AI assistant that helps a writer organize their ideas, sort of like the what's called mid-journey thing that's been getting a lot of attention lately because it makes art, put that in air quotes, by dragging in other artwork and altering it using artificial intelligence to do it. And I had this idea between that Calliope thing of having all these ideas and people talking about who owns the art for this mid-journey stuff because some people were making comics from it and using that just for their art and my idea was what if the ai is like well wait i own that art i made it and the ai it's like i guess i imagine this is a sort of short story where the ai is like no i I wrote your book dude You, you don't get to own this book and benefit from it if i don't benefit from it i don't know what an ai would necessarily want as its benefit but that was the little one sentence idea and so then i was thinking about old ideas i had Um, This is one I had. This is on two different cards. One in 96, one in 99. The 96 card, November 11th, 96. Next to the date I wrote, actually much earlier. Yeah, I think I had this visual from an X-Files episode. And it was a specific image, a scene. A team of firemen is slaughtered by people who live around the burning building. They claim a demon was inside. Essentially, these people set fire to their building, but we start at the end of the story with firefighters coming to put it out, and they stop them. And then there was an extra detail where I had scarab beetles all over the smoldering remains and in the dead firemen's bodies, and I don't know what it was going for there. And then later, this became a specific story called Nile Avenue Presbyterian, and it was a church now that was burning. The people of the neighborhood won't let the fire department move in to stop the flames. They just keep fighting off the firemen, and one by one, going back into the burning building to continue the fight. All that's left in the end is rubble and scarab beetles. I still don't know why I had... I guess that's why I named it Nile Avenue. 
Just going for some Egyptian theme. Whatever. And by giving it a name, Nyon Presbyterian, it was going to specifically be in Carlton Falls, town I mentioned last week, near Diamond Bay, Diamond Cove. And so I started tying all these ideas back into other things. This was one off-season at the Pyramid Bar. With the tourists gone from Carlton Falls, things are different for the patrons of the Pyramid Bar. Women and men alike are settling for locals. Fights are more elaborate, more violent, and the bartender's a little suicidal. That's not even a whole premise. (laughs) That's how a lot of these go. They're short. They're quick. A guy is reborn as soon as he dies, over and over. Sounds like I was into time loops. This is from 96, 227, 96. The longer he lives, the more he forgets. So if he lives a long time before a death, he doesn't know that he'll come back. Each time he's born, he remembers everything, but only for a few moments and only as a baby. I will say there's a little bit of that in my idea for a story called The Last Song of Whisper Black Raid, which is a Guardia story. Talked about this last week. If you're not listening to these episodes in order, find the previous one. I talked about Guardia last week, not about this story. But particularly, it was about a pair of brothers from the Old West, American history, who have been drawn into Guardia, and they keep getting switched every decade or so. There was a specific math formula for how often they were in one place and the other, and then they get pulled back to Earth, and then they get pulled into Guardia, and they get pulled back to Earth, and back to Guardia. And they have these two lives switching back and forth, and I wanted to start with the end of their story, where they're old men dealing with this series of murders. And this legendary pirate, Whisper Blackbraid, who everyone thinks is responsible. But part of that story was that as they get closer to this time where they're going to be pulled back into the other world, they sort of have that inkling of it. One of the brothers more than the other. The other brother, I think, sort of starts to forget, but does it deliberately, consciously. Tries to live his life where he is, and then one is just like, I'm ready to go, let's do this. So themes that stick with me, stuff like that. Repetition, it's no wonder that I got into time loops like I did. Not just because Groundhog Day, that was a specific exercise at a specific time in my life starting that blog, but it then built into an attachment to a type of story that I think goes into my love of story itself and love of movies. You know, if you don't like the end of a movie, you start over at the beginning. If you like the ending, you go back and relive it again by going back to the beginning. You can always go back. You've been changed, the movie's been changed, but it's also all the same. Repetition. This was called Touching. But I always love this notion. I won't go into too much detail because it's stuff that I'd have to explain way too backstory related to other stuff. But essentially this girl, Bryony, is given an ability by her brother Jeremy where she can heal someone. And she's running off to... Where is she going? Um, Oh, her brother. Wait, her brother? No, her brother's Jeremy. What is happening here? No, her brother's not Jeremy. Her friend's brother is Jeremy. Whatever. This guy, Taryn, that she's friends with, has been injured in an accident, and he's probably going to die. Jeremy gives Bryony the ability to heal him. Problem is, it's a very specific sort of charge of healing energy, and it is in her hands. And so he tells her, you know, wear gloves, don't touch anyone. Once you touch someone, that burst is going to come out, it's going to fix something in them. And her brother Taryn is out of town, maybe in or around LA, and he's been in an accident, he's been hurt badly, will probably die. She's going to see him. First, she goes to see Jeremy Doyle to convince him to go with her to heal. After a long argument, which Jeremy admits to loving her as much as he loves Rachel. Eh, that's complicated. Jeremy finally figures a way to help. He says, go to Locksmith, etc. That was a local shop in Diamond Bay. And ask William Locke for the gold necklace he found in India. He'll know which one I mean. Take it. If he asks, oh, it's in a necklace. I don't remember this. Interesting. If he asks for money, tell him it's for me. Bride does and brings it to Jeremy. 
He charges it so that wearing it, the next person Bri touches will be healed. And so Bri heads to get to Eric, has a tough time avoiding touching anyone, and just as she's getting there, basically this whole, basically I imagine the middle is almost this absurdist slapstick or farce comedy where she's asked to avoid touching different people as she's going through all those motions. Probably work as sort of a short film structure, actually, where you have great visuals of her avoiding people. But just as she's getting near, she's maybe even right near the hospital, it says, she witnesses an accident, a child severely injured, and then she heals that child and then can only sit with Eric. Eric? Oh, originally it was Brian and Eric, and then I switched it to different characters. I don't even know who those characters I switched it to are. So then she just sits with Eric as he dies. Bleak, melancholy, my kind of story. And it's sort of this absurdist comedy pretending it's a drama. No, it's a tragedy pretending it's an absurdist comedy. Maybe that's a better description. Other things I grabbed when I was looking in the box of old ideas is one I've actually posted about this on Facebook. So if you're a friend of mine, you've probably seen this. But it was an idea for a TV show called Herkimer Floyd P.I. Herkimer Harold Floyd. He's basically this character actor who used to play a detective on TV back in the 70s on a show called Bendik. And his wife or ex-wife is murdered and he's suspected. And so basically he has to start relying. If you remember Remington Steele from the 80s, they often had references to old movies. And it was sort of like that. And also I picture the a thing in Romancing the Stone where she's like, well, in my first book, they hid the jewel in the statue. That's how they figure out where the jewel is. And it was basically going to be him referencing all these old episodes of this Bendik TV show he was on and occasionally some other stuff he was in. And I had a list of things, projects he worked on. He was going to keep referencing these things. He kind of becomes a detective in reality based on the stuff that they used to write for him as a detective on TV in order to try to prove that he didn't kill his wife. And it involves some Hollywood producers that might be behind it, some criminal figures. I have a whole series of multiple pages of... Pages from a little notebook, so it's not like huge full pages. Details about characters that would be involved and how that would go. I have an idea here where I had my own idea. That, oh, when was this? 1998. It was my idea for, they were doing more Crow comic book stories. Not by James Lebar, just inspired by it. His original. And mine was called The Crow, My Children. And it was going to be a two-part story. Book one, Despair. Whoa. Oh, I found some other story ideas here. Fun. I took a clip off of this thing that I thought was just notes from my crow story and had other stuff behind it, including a short film I started to write called In-Flight Movie, where it was set on a plane, so it would cost a bit of money to produce because it would have had to film at Air Hollywood in an actual, like, plane set to make it work, and that involved a few different stories. There's this romantic comedy story going on where it turns out it's a little like the movie Red Eye. This woman meets this man, and by the end of the story, you find out he's just having a last little fling with her as he's about to blow up the plane. Meanwhile, there's this other story, the story that started it, was these two guys debating how momentum works in a plane. If, like, if you jumped up, would you hit the back of the plane? Which is really dumb, but that was the thing. It was a comedy that's going to end in death. And there's some kids going through their own little fantasy roleplay thing with each other. And spoilers, because I'm never going to write this story. The end of the story was going to take that first thing with the two guys discussing momentum and this one's in the aisle. He's like, I'm going to do it. Right as the guy in the romantic comedy story gets up to set off his bomb and he's about to arm the thing and he's about to yell and get everyone's attention. I have a bomb, whatever. And the guy was going to jump up in the air and physics was not going to work how it should work. It was going to be total fiction for the joke. 
is that he jumps up in the air and does slam into the back of the plane, but in doing so, he slams right through the guy who has the bomb, so the bomb doesn't go off and everyone's fine. The end. (laughs) I wrote part of that story, the two guys debating momentum and physics, and I wrote the kids part. I never wrote the romantic comedy part, because romantic comedy is not my thing. Then we got a couple cards for things I did actually sort of write. Cowboys and Aliens, I did write part of the script, and I had some drawings for character sketches and the style of it. This is from 10496. Group of Indian hating cowboys join up with a cavalry unit that's going to attack an Indian village. Apparently, I wasn't woke enough to not call them Indians in my card. Sorry. The battle begins harder than they thought it would be because there are more Indians than they thought. It's interrupted by the arrival of an alien ship that dispenses its men who seize people one by one and drag the man aboard. Drag them aboard. Sorry, my handwriting in 96 was apparently awful. The cavalry and the Indians join together to fight them off like a classic forced-to-team-up story, but the cowboys still can't stand it. They slowly kill the Indians and leave, deserting the cavalry troop to be killed or taken by the aliens in entirety. Essentially, it was a story about this racist group of cowboys that can't handle working together with the natives, and so kill them and end up getting everyone else killed in the process. Or abducted. I had a cover sketch for that, some character ideas, idea what the pages look like, with these silhouette cactus things on some of the pages and stuff in the frame details. Then another one I had here, this is for 1796, but I did write and draw two little comic strips based around this. It's called Young Ones, Vampires, all of them physically children, Young and Innocent in Appearance, Savage and Unforgiving Inside, there are only a few of them, banded together because the vampires of the world have exiled them, forsaken them. Though they are old and often active, they seem psychologically linked to their physical selves. There's more, but the two stories I wrote were this one who sits on a park bench and pretends their puppy is lost in order to lure in an old woman and then like jumps at him and attacks. And then there's another one who is training a dog to attack people. And I think they're on my website, go to lemondrops.com. I think you can find it under the comics link. And then I was circling around to the crow, because why would I talk about the last syllable of recorded time when I could talk about other things? Ha ha. Deliberately in this case, but also inevitably. This is from 10598. Wife died, he killed himself, not exactly. He pulled purposely into the path of an oncoming truck. The truck driver was drunk, was blamed, got off on a technicality. At first it seems the crow... Yeah, yeah, essentially, it wasn't like a lot of the crow stories, which were always these revenge plots. Mine was more of a melodrama about a father who got too distraught over his wife's death and caused himself to die, and then realizes his two kids are going to be left in foster care because they don't have any close relatives, and he is afraid that they aren't going to be taken care of. And so it was more about this guy coming back to try to make sure his kids were taken care of, and it was about him sort of forming a relationship with this social worker, and it wasn't going to be a violent story. It was trying to go for a different tone based around the same mythos as The Crow, because all their other ones were just like, it's the same Eric Draven story, but different edgy name, and now he's a Native American in the 1800s. Or now he's a whatever in the 1950s, or it just they just change the setting and it's what do you call that? The serial number filed off, I think, is the TV trope page for it. Or it's the same story, they just alter it slightly. And I wanted mine to be something else and different. And maybe this would have worked as a different story entirely and not try to tie it to the crow. And then I might have actually at some point written it. 
Instead, I have a handful of 3x5 cards with some drawing ideas, some sketches. This is my point, though. Inevitably, I get stuck on sorting out too many details, and that can mess up other stuff I'm doing. Like, things I really want to write will get bogged down in too much detail. I'm running Curse of Straw to my D&D campaign currently because Daggers of Crosswater, latest title for it and probably the one it will stick with, was taking a lot of prep because of the premise of the story, the setting of the story. I wanted an entire campaign to take place in this one little town. And so I had to know a lot of detail about that town and who lives there and what they do from day to day. And some of it would be stuff I could come up with on the fly. I just got to write it down and keep track. Like, time loop in, last syllable, recorded time. Is certain things happen at certain time of day, but I just have to remember it for later. It's not that I have to know all of it ahead of time, but I keep getting this feeling that I don't know enough ahead of time, and I need to keep cataloging before I get to writing. At some point, the writing happens. At some point, it doesn't. Some of my best writing, uh, a novella I did called Beginning, and then I also wrote a screenplay version of it, was supposed to be uh, like a 20-page short story about a character from one of the other books, a minor character in a novel I'd written, and what happened to her afterward when she moves to the other side of the country and changes her name to try to hide from her past life and starts a romance with a guy who runs a used bookstore. And that story ballooned up from what I thought would be a 20-page short story to a 200-page novella, and it had a lot going on. It's one of the favorite things of stuff I've written, but I didn't expect it to be that, so I hadn't planned a lot, but then it kind of had that flow. I want this screenplay to have that flow, but also, there's still a lot of prep to do. So, tune in next week, and every week. And hey, if you're a writer, whether you know me already or not, look me up, Robert E.G. Black, on social media, go to lemmingdrops.com, my website, or my Facebook, or whatever. Find me, come on the show. We can chat about writing if you like. I don't know. If you're a writer, you probably understand everything I'm saying. Sometimes you get bogged down in the wrong part of the process. And sometimes that makes it work anyway. Cut. The, uh, it's a stuff that dreams are made of. You're still here? It's over, Johnny. It's over? It's over! Nothing is over! Go home. Nothing! You just don't turn it off! Go.